Jeremiah chapter 18. Jeremiah chapter 18. Well-known story of the, the potter's house. I'm going to be reading from verse 1 uh, through to verse 6. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will cause you to hear my words. Then I went down to the potter's house, and there he was making something at the wheel. And the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter, so he made it again into another vessel, as it seemed good to the potter to make. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter, says the Lord? Look, as the clay is in the hand, as in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. Look, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. God often spoke to his prophets through wordless parables, sign sermons, visual illustrations. For example, uh, Zechariah, he saw a man with a measuring tape going through Jerusalem measuring. He saw a lampstand between two great olive trees. Ezekiel saw this enormous wheel in the middle of a wheel that reached up to the heavens. He also saw a valley of dry bones and all the bones began to come together and stand up as a man and skin and tissues was put upon it. John, in the book of Revelation chapter 6, he saw four horsemen. We normally know them as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. The first one was a white horse and the rider had a bow and he had a crown that says he went forth conquering and to conquer the second horse was a fiery red horse and the, and the rider had a great sword speaking of war and making war. And the third horse was a black horse and the rider had a set of balancing scales in his hand denoting scarcity and lack and famine and starvation. And the fourth horse was a pale horse and that denoted death, death through destruction and wars and famines and so on. And so these are signs and they all meant something. John also saw the judgments of God as seven seals being broken, seven trumpets being blown, seven bowls being poured out. And among the many things that Jeremiah saw and heard uh, that was given to him as a sign, either to see or to hear or to speak, among those things was this one here, to pay a visit to the potter's house. Now, Jeremiah loved Israel, and he knew that God loved Israel. And even Jeremiah, like, like Christ, wept over Jerusalem. He was called the weeping prophet. But Jeremiah here is in despair because the country is in a shambles. It is morally and spiritually corrupt. It's far from God. It's rebellious. And Jeremiah once saw his great nation inexorably sliding towards destruction and despair. And as it grew weaker, its enemies grew stronger. And defeat and captivity seemed inevitable. Its recovery seemed impossible. Its wound was incurable. It seemed hopeless. That's a pretty bleak and dark picture to paint, isn't it? But that's the way that it was. But then God said, 
Go to the potter's house. I want to show you something. The parable to show you. Now in the, in the context of Jeremiah 18, it's specifically for the nation of Israel to show God's sovereignty that God could do with any nation, including Israel. He could scrub them out and start all over again if he wanted to because he's a sovereign God. But it also has got some lessons for us. For, for any man or any woman that feels that their usefulness is over, that their wound is incurable, that their life is irredeemable. It's not. It's not. With God, it's not. All of us, you see, are on the wheel of time. All of us are, are living clay. All of us are subject to outside influences and pressures. All of us are susceptible to inside failures and weaknesses. Yet as long as we're on the wheel of time, as long as we are living clay that's still pliable and malleable, and as long as we're in the hands of the great potter, then he can't make us again and again. And so the potter's house, for us, is a wonderful story of hope. Aren't you glad that God doesn't put you on the scrap heap when he finds a flaw in your life? Because <laughs> there's plenty of flaws in our lives, isn't there? And it says, a bruised reed shall he not break, and smoking flax shall he not quench, Isaiah 42. It's a wonderful story of patience. And God is a God of patience. I, sorry, Romans 15 and 5, God is called the God of patience. And so he is a, a God who's very, very patient with us. He sent his Holy Spirit to win us and to woo us to his Son. And some of us, it took years. Aren't you glad he was patient with you? Some of us saved when we were little children. Some of us were actually in our 20s and 30s and 40s and 50s before we became believers. And all those years, God was patient with us and he waited for us. Christ is the author and he's the finisher of our faith. The Bible says in Philippians 1 and 6, he who has begun a good work in you will complete it unto the day of Jesus Christ. It's a wonderful story of possibilities. So as long as you're in the hand of the potter, as long as you're living clay, as long as you're still pliable, then you can be made anew. So as long as we yield ourselves to God's gracious hands, as long as we allow him to work on us, then he can turn us again into a vessel fit and ready to use for him. The clay was marred in the hand of the potter. It wasn't marred by the hand of the potter. The fault was in the clay. It wasn't with the potter. And the potter was willing to fix the fault and to cure the cause. And he could easily, so easily make it again into another vessel. So let's this morning in the time we have together look at what kind of vessel is on the potter's wheel. And let's look at ourselves as vessels. First of all, it was a ruined vessel but it became a renewed vessel. Verse 4, so he made it again another vessel. Many a man or a woman was a ruined vessel, but God renewed them. They were ruined, but God remade them, renewed them. Bartimaeus, the blind beggar, was a ruined man. Life had kicked him to the curb. Every day, he sat on the pavement watching the world pass by 
begging, hoping that somebody would throw a few coins where he could buy a crust of bread to eat that day. That's what life had reduced him to. You know, he couldn't work. If he had a family, we don't know. He couldn't meet their needs. All he could do every day was sit on that pavement and just hope and pray that somebody would have mercy and throw him a couple of coins until Jesus came along. And when Jesus came along and he shouted out, Oh, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus touched him and healed that blindness. And suddenly he was renewed. He was a different man. And I can imagine him going home now. I don't know whether he had a wife and kids or he certainly had a mother and father, I'm sure. Maybe he had a family. And I can imagine him going home with a great big smile on his face and instantly they could see that he could see them. And he was totally and completely renewed. He was a different man. And now he could get a job. Now he could work. Now he could be like everybody else. What a difference. He was a ruined man but he became a renewed man. The prodigal went into the far country. The Bible says, and there he wasted his substance with riotous living. That inheritance didn't last long. He blew the lot, and now he's stony broke. And there's a famine strikes the land. Just when he lost all of his money, a famine comes, and he ends up feeding pigs in a pig pen. Can you imagine For a young Jewish man to end up feeding pigs, how humiliating would that be? And he even wanted to eat the very food of the pigs, but the owner would not even let him eat the hus of the pigs. What a situation to be in. What a state to be in. He was absolutely ruined. He had blown everything. His relationship back home, as far as he was concerned, he had blown that. His father's money is gone. Everything's gone. But then he decides he's nothing else he can lose. He'd go back to the father's house and just hope to be a slave there. But you know the story well and how he went back and he was totally and utterly forgiven. His father held a party for him and he was just renewed. He was just remade all over again. Glory to God. This is what God can do when we're in the hands of the potter. Jacob was the deceiver, wasn't he? His very name was in the clue of that. He was the deceiver. He was the manipulator. He conned his own father, lied to his own father and to steal the birthright of his brother. I mean, how low can you go to go to your old, aged, blinded father and just con him into trying to get that birthright? And of course, after that happened, we know that Esau was mad and threatened to kill him and his mother says, well, why didn't you go to your uncle Laban's just for a few days till this blows over until your brother cools off and he ended up there 20 years. And by the time he did come back, his mother, who loved him and he loved his mom, she was long since dead. And so here's a life that's ruined, spoiled, ruined. Relationship with his family, everything ruined. But on the way back, he has that encounter, doesn't he? He has that encounter. And Christ turns this Jacob, this deceiver, this con man, this cheat, this liar, He turns him into Israel, a prince with God. Only God can do that. Only God can do that. Only the potter can do that. He made him again another vessel. A renewed man. A remade man. A restored man. 
We used to sing in here years ago, and Fanai used to sing it, Mercy Rewrote My Life. Great old song. And mercy rewrote all of our lives, believers, didn't it? It's the mercy of God that rewrote our lives. Where would we be today if it wasn't for the mercy of God? Where would we be if it wasn't for the great potter taking a hold of us? And so, the word may have written over your life ruined, ruined, but God struck it out and wrote renewed, remade, restored, glory to God. Satan may have written over your home and over your family and over your business and over your children, ruined, but the Lord struck it out and he wrote restored, renewed, remade, glory to God. The vessel was marred, but the potter mended it. It was a ruined vessel, but it became a renewed vessel. It was a useless vessel, but it became a useful vessel. Philemon was a Christian businessman, a personal friend of the Apostle Paul, had a church in his home. And one of his servants stole from him, a godly good man, stole from him, ran off to the big city with his ill-gotten gains. We don't know how, but he wound up in prison with the Apostle Paul. And Paul led him to Christ. Led him to Christ. He called him my son in the faith. And he, he would have loved him to stay with him, to be his companion, but he couldn't do that without the permission, of course, of Philemon, his friend. So he writes a letter to Philemon. It's the shortest letter Paul ever wrote. You'll find it in the New Testament. And, and, and Paul had a great way with words, and he was able to make plays on words. And he does that in his letter to Philemon. And here's what he said to him. In Philemon, verses 10 to 11, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my chains, who was once unprofitable to you, but now is profitable to you and to me. You see, the, the name Onesimus, that's what it means, profitable. Literally, that's what it means. So Paul's using this, and he sent him this. He who was once profitable, then he became unprofitable, but now through the grace of God, he's become profitable again to you and to me. You see, that's what God does, isn't it? He renews us. He changes us. He makes a difference in our lives. And he makes us profitable. He makes us useful again. He was unuseful, but now he's become useful again. Paul says, to you and to me. And of course, to the Lord, no doubt. And then in, in Acts chapter 13, in fact, just the last verse of Acts 12, first of all, and then in the 13. So Acts 12, 25, And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry, and they also took with them John, whose surname was Mark. This is Barnabas' nephew, John Mark. Now in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lysias of Cyrene, Manaen, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul, 
for the work to which I have called them. And then having fasted and prayed, laid hands on them, they sent them away. And so here's this evangelistic team going out to minister and to preach the gospel and to reach people that have not, Christ is not known to them. And so they go out as this little team. Paul and Barnabas and John Mark went with them. But then in verse 13 of chapter 13, now when Paul and his party set sail from Paphos and they came to Perga in Pamphylia and John departing from them returned to Jerusalem. So into this evangelistic period, at some point, John Mark stopped and said, I can't go on. I'm going to go home. I'm going to go back to Jerusalem. Now, we don't know exactly why he did that. Some say, well, he was just lazy. And some say, well, perhaps he was afraid. You know, to be around the apostle Paul wasn't easy because everywhere he went, there was either a revival, there was a, a, a revolution, there was a riot. Something was going on. You know, and there's whippings and beatings and lashings and stonings and all of that there. So some say, well, maybe, maybe he just felt, I can't handle this. This is too much for me and he went home. But whatever the reason, he quit and he went back home. And then, of course, they continued and fulfilled their mission. But then sometime later, they decided they wanted to go back again, Paul and Barnabas. They wanted to go back again and check the churches that they had raised up and see how they were doing. And so when you come into chapter 15, this is what they were going to do. Verse 36 of chapter 15. Then after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us now go back and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Now Barnabas was determined to take with them John called Mark. That's his nephew. He's got an affinity with him. He wanted to give him another opportunity. But Paul insisted that they would not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Then the contention became so sharp that they departed one from another. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God. And they went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. And so Barnabas, quite naturally, it's his nephew, and maybe just because he wanted to give him a second chance, he says, look, I think we should take this young man back with him. And Paul says, no way. I don't want anything to do with that boy. He's let me down once. He's not going to let me down again. Paul was pretty hard-nosed. I mean, he wasn't going to fill about. I mean, if you were with Paul, you had to bite by his, his rules or else it's his way or the highway as far as he was concerned. That's what he was like. He's a tough cookie. So he says, no, I'm not having him. He let me down. I'm not, I'm, he's not going with us to do this again. And so the contention was great and he split. But then away, way later on, Paul's an old man now. He's coming to the end of his life. He knows his time is short. He's going to die as a martyr. And so he, he writes to Timothy here. And in chapter 4 of 2 Timothy, in verse 9, here's what he says. Be diligent to come to me quickly. For Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world, has departed from Thess for Thessalonica, Christians for Galatia, Titus for Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for ministry. For he is useful to me for ministry. He who was useless 
and his opinion now has become useful to him. Now, we don't know what happened the intervening period. No doubt Paul had kept tabs on him through Barnabas. Maybe Barnabas kept saying, do you know John Mark is doing really, really well. He's really grown, he's really matured, he's doing brilliantly, he's doing great. And he was. And he had matured. And he had done so well that even now the great apostle Paul, you know, Paul wasn't infallible. I mean, he was mighty man of God, second only to Christ in the New Testament, but he was a man at that. And then he humbled himself. says, do you know what? You're right. He's done great. In fact, he's done so good, I want him to come and help me. He's useful now to me. He was useless before, but now he's useful again to me. Now, we don't know why he left them. We can only speculate. But what we do know is that he did mature and he did become very useful in the kingdom. In fact, he is the author of the Gospel of Mark. John Mark, he was the one who wrote it. And so he became very, very useful in God's kingdom. A useless vessel became a useful vessel. And then... It was a cheapened vessel, but it became a chosen vessel. Verse 4. So he made it again into another vessel as it seemed good to the potter to make. He could have dumped it. He could have scrapped it. He could have thrown it away. But it seemed good for him to remake it, to restore it, to renew it again. He chose to give it another chance. Aren't you glad God is the God of the second chance and of the third, third chance and fourth chance? He gives chances, doesn't he? I've had lots of chances. I had plenty of opportunities to come to Christ years before I did, and I didn't. But God was patient and merciful, and he gave me another chance, and then another chance. And eventually, in the mercy of God, I came to him. A cheapened vessel, but it became a chosen vessel. You remember that woman who was caught in adultery in the very act, it says? And how those Pharisees dragged her all through the streets of Jerusalem into the temple, right into the court of the woman where there'd be hundreds of people and there the master Jesus was standing teaching and they just flung her down at his feet. And the law says, stone her. Enforce the law. And the law did say for adultery to be stoned. And the adulterer should have been there too, but he wasn't. Maybe he was one of them. But that's what the law said. And Jesus is preaching grace and mercy and compassion. So they're trying to trick him, trip him, cause him to stumble. But we know the story how Jesus stooped down and wrote in the ground. And one by one by one, from the eldest to the youngest, they all left. Where are your accusers, woman, he said. No man accuse me, Lord. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. I'm not condoning what you did, but I'm not going to condemn you. You see, the law condemned her, but because there was no accusers, it couldn't convict her. Because in the word, in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. Well, where were the witnesses? Where were the accusers? They were gone. They were now too busy looking at their own sins of their own life. So Jesus says, I'm not going to condemn you, but go and sin no more. 
doesn't tell us how that woman lived the rest of her life, but I, I would like to think that she never, ever, ever committed adultery again. I would like to think that that was the turning point in her life, that from that moment on, she lived a life that was clean and pure before God. It was a cheapened vessel, but it became a chosen vessel. Mary of Magdala, out of whom Jesus cast seven devils. Now we preachers, we preachers, unfortunately give this woman the title of a prostitute, a harlot, a woman of the night, a woman of ill repute. The Bible never ever says that about Mary of Magdala. Never. Never. It just says out of whom Jesus cast seven devils. So the assumption is she must have been a prostitute. No, the Bible doesn't say that. So why should we say that? But whatever it was, whatever they were, whatever these dark forces were in her life, it cheapened her some way. Now, she was a businesswoman. She was a woman who had money. She was a woman of means in the city. But these forces that controlled her from time to time would manifest, and it cheapened her until Jesus came along. And at one point, Jesus must have looked her right in the eye and rebuked those spirits and they left her. And she became one of the most devoted followers of Jesus Christ ever. She was last at the cross, first at the tomb. What devotion she had for Jesus from that moment on. She was a cheapened vessel, but she became a chosen vessel. And today, after 2,000 years, we're still talking about her. The Apostle Paul, looking back over his life, given his testimony, he says, I was the chiefest of sinners. There was not a sinner worse than me, Paul says, because <laughs> I persecuted the church. I persecuted the church whom Christ loved. So he says, I'm the, ch I'm the worst of all sinners. I'm the chief one. But you see, he was a cheapened vessel. He was a clever, educated theologian. If he had been living today, he'd been a professor of theology. But he has so much hatred in his life against Christians, it cheapened him. But he became a chosen vessel. When he had that encounter on the road to Damascus, and he was blinded for a period. In Acts 9.15, God speaks to Ananias, a godly man, and says, I want you to go and pray. Lay your hands upon Saul of Tarsus and pray and say what I tell you to say. And he didn't want to go because Saul of Tarsus had an awful reputation against Christians. And you can see why he didn't want to go. But in Acts 9.15, but the Lord said to Ananias, go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. He's a chosen vessel to me. It's amazing whom God chooses, isn't it? He chose all of us, by the way. We're his chosen. He had every right not to choose us. <laughs> hmm? He could have bundled us up and threw us away in the scrap heap and said they could never be any good to me. But he chose us. And he made us again a vessel fit for him. It was a flawed vessel, but it became a favored vessel. The Bible is full of flawed men and women that God favored. I'm looking at a congregation of flawed men and women. <laughs> and you're looking at a flawed preacher and pastor. 
I have plenty of flaws. If you don't know what they are, have a wee word with my wife. <laughs> See if she'll dish the dirt. I have flaws. We all have flaws. We're human beings. Abraham lied about his wife. Can you imagine that? Lied about his wife. And then his son Isaac, he lied about his wife. Moses lost his temper. You remember how he struck that rock when he should have only spoken to it? And he was so angry with the people. And then, and then he claimed God's power as his own. Must we fetch water from this rock? You scoundrels. <laughs> you know, he was really mad at the congregation and then he struck the rock with a staff and he shouldn't have done that. He should have only spoken to it. But you see, he claimed God's power as his. He, he couldn't bring water out of a rock. Nobody can, only God. Must we do this? No. David was a great king, fantastic poet and musician, great warrior, great soldier, great fighter. But boy, was he ever flawed. He was a really flawed man. And the wonderful thing about the Bible is the Bible doesn't hide the flaws of its heroes. You read about them warts and all. God doesn't sugarcoat it. He just says, well, this is what they were. And David, we know what David did. And as far as his family was concerned, he was not a good father at all. At all. He was a deeply flawed man, and yet God favored him. In spite of it, God favored him and used him mightily. Elijah was a man of like passion such as we are. Thomas was a doubter. James and John were racist and vindictive. Wanted to call fire down from heaven and burn up the Samaritans. How would you like to have them for your pastors, eh? And yet, and yet, and yet, even though they were flawed, deeply flawed, but God favored them. And God worked on them. And John became the apostle of love. <laughs> the man who was so bitter and racist and vindictive became the great apostle of love. Only the potter can do that. Amen. Only the potter can mold us and make us. Glory to God. Then finally, it was a worthless vessel that became a worthy vessel. Only God can make the worthless worthy. Only God can do that. If everyone here was to stand up right now and give your testimony, some of you would be shocked. You would look at that person and say, boy, I never could have believed that. I didn't know they were like that. But that's the grace of God, isn't it? He changes us. Dear friend of mine, many years ago, he's in the glory today, and he used to come here in the early days, and he had a car business, you know, selling cars. And he, and he was the loveliest man you could ever meet, a godly man, mild-mannered, lovely spoken, just a gentle soul, lovely to be around, all of that, loved the house of God, loved Christ, loved the church. But he told me one day, he says, David, if you had known me before I was saved, he says, within five seconds, he says, I would have embarrassed you. He says, I had such a filthy mouth. He says, every other word was just a blasphemous swear word. He says, awful. He said, terrible, awful mouth. But he says, Christ saved me. 
The first thing he did was clean up the mouth. <laughs> I, I, I'd known him for years. I never knew he was like that because I didn't know him before he was saved. Oh, he says, yeah. He says, you, you wouldn't want to be in my company. He says, That's, I was so bad like that. Anybody here tell him Zig Ziglar? Zig Ziglar, he's, he's gone now, he died about 10 years ago. He was the top salesman in all of America. He had a brother called Judge Ziglar, by the way. He wrote a book, Judge Ziglar wrote a book called Timid Salesmen Have Skinny Kids. <laughs> That's a great title, isn't it? Timid Salesmen Have Skinny Kids. But anyway, <laughs> Zig Ziglar, he came to Belfast to speak to the Amway group of people. I don't know if they're still here today, but they sell stuff. They're salespeople. And he came to, to do a talk. And a young Christian asked me, he got me a ticket. He says, look, would you go with me? Now, I, I, did, I never heard tell us Zig Ziglar. Didn't know him from Adam. Cared nothing about Amway. Didn't want to go. But because he was a young Christian, he invited me. I went with him. Boy, I'm glad I did. Because when whenever he opened up, and he spoke for about 40, 45 minutes, he hardly even mentioned Amway at all. He gave his testimony. He talked about when he got saved, when he met the Lord. And he says how he became a tither and how he honors God. From then on, he says, I have honored God in all my ways, in my business, everything. I just honor God. Ha, ah, but he said, he says, before I became a believer, and he says, because of my position as the top salesman, I was invited to all the big execs would invite me to their conferences, and I was the speaker. He says, I was a filthy mouth. I told the most off-color jokes, and I cursed, and I swore. And he says, they loved it. And they clapped and cheered. It was, they thought this was great. And he says, then I got saved. And then he's telling us, when Jesus, then I got saved, he says. That was the words he used. I got saved, he says. And he says, God cleaned my mouth up. And he says, I, I couldn't swear and curse anymore or tell jokes like that. He said, I could, just couldn't do it. And everybody said, well, nobody will book you now. Your career's finished. Nobody will want to hear you. He says, do you know what? I am booked two years in advance. I have two full years booking in advance. And he says, I never swear, never tell a dirty joke, and I talk about Jesus. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? You see, he was a worthless vessel, but he became a worthy vessel in God's kingdom. Failure need not be final. Your flaw doesn't have to be your fate. That oyster, that little bit of grit goes in there and boy, it causes that oyster some grief, doesn't it? It's so irritating and annoying, but the oyster's got a plan and it covers it, covers it, and covers it and it makes it into a beautiful pearl. See, your flaw need not be fatal. And so today, all of us in here and all of you out there you're in the hand of the potter. If you give yourself to the potter today, if you put your life into his hands and allow him to remake you and renew you and restore you, if you do that, your life will never be the same again. It'll change completely. From here on out, it'll be totally different. That's the hand of the potter. And only the potter can do that for us, can't they? Aren't you glad today that you're in his hands? And even though there's still some flaws in us, and even though we're still on the wheel, and even though we're still malleable and pliable, thank God we are. And as long as we are, he'll keep remaking and remaking and remaking till he makes us into that perfect vessel that he wants us to be. Amen? Let's pray.
Lord God, we thank you today that you do love us and that you have a plan for each of our lives, that you are making us and shaping us and molding us. Lord, help us to be pliable. Help us not to get hardened in our hearts. Help us to be soft and willing and wanting to be made again into the vessel that you have designed for us to be. And so I pray for this congregation, for all the ones that we know so well. Thank you for all of their testimonies of changed lives. For those who are watching today, I pray for them, but I don't know many of them. I pray, oh God, that as they put their life into your hands, that you will change them, that you will turn them into the vessel that you had always planned for them to be, meet and fit for the master's use. So Lord, bless your church. Bless those friends that are watching on the internet and let your presence and your goodness and your favor go with us every day of our lives. And as we go into this working week, we pray, O oh God, that your hand will be on us for good and Lord, that your divine purposes will be worked out in our lives each and every day. For the glory of God, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.